is uh, during this part of Jeremiah, most of his ministry, he's in the last decades and uh, mostly the last few years of the history of Judah, a time when they are sinful, um, a time when during Josiah's reign, externally they changed, but internally they were still idolaters, and after Josiah died, it was horrible. You know, just a series of wicked rulers, idolatry, all sorts of alliances with countries, but particularly Egypt, and, and just a lot of corruption, oppression. Uh, there's no, there's no uh, question about why the Lord sent them into captivity. I mean, they were just so wicked. So what Jeremiah is largely doing is, you know, unmasking their wickedness and just showing them for who they really were. And uh, he was, uh, he, and then, you know, declaring to them the judgment that was coming upon them. Um, so, uh, would somebody read Jeremiah chapter 5, verses 1 to 6? Run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem, and look now and take note, and seek in her open squares, if you can find a man, if there is one who does justice, who seeks truth, then I will pardon her. And although they say, as the Lord lives, surely they swear falsely. O Lord, do not your eyes look for truth? You have smitten them, but they did not weaken. You have consumed them, but they refused to take correction. They have made their faces harder than rock. They have refused to repent. Then I said, They are only the poor. They are foolish. For they do not know the way of the Lord or the ordinance of their God. I will do to the great and will speak to them. For they know the way of the Lord and the ordinance of their God. But they too, with one accord, have broken the yoke and burst the bonds. Therefore, a lion from the forest will slay them. A wolf of the deserts will destroy them. A leopard is watching their cities. Everyone who goes out of them will be torn in pieces because their transgressions are many. Their apostasies are numerous. All right, in the first verse, what's Jeremiah looking for? Unrighteous man. How many? How many was uh, Abraham uh, looking for in Sodom? Fifty. Fifty, and he got it down to ten. ten. <laughs> We'd be happy to find one in Jerusalem that's so corrupt. Isn't that uh, a shocking statement? Uh, I, I, I don't suppose we can press this literally. I mean, Jeremiah is one. <laughs> but now he's looking for one other. Maybe Baruch, his secretary scribe. But, but essentially, there's just nobody righteous left. I mean, it's really, really bad. And, uh, you know, if, if he could find one, you know, he'd forgive them. That's kind of the idea that, that we've got. Um, he's trying to show Jeremiah why he's got to judge them. And Jeremiah then is showing the people why the judgment is inevitable. In, in verse 2, they would say, as the Lord lives, that is, they'd make oaths using the name of God. But it was using the name of God to support a lie. You know, as the Lord lives, surely they swear falsely. For one thing, they weren't at all concerned about the Lord. And for a second thing, they didn't have any regard for truth, so they, they'd swear to God to support a lie. Now, if you swear to God to support a lie, what does that show? Lack of respect. Absolutely. No respect for the name of God. You know, you're willing to, to drag his name through the dirt to try to convince somebody of something that's not true. 
So again, just outrageous attitudes. God had punished them. He'd smitten them. But doesn't change them. You know, he's consumed them. But they refuse to take correction. They've made their faces harder than rock. What does that mean? What would we say? We wouldn't say their faces were harder than rock. We'd say they were really hard-hearted, stubborn, hard-headed. Yeah, we can talk about the whole head, not just the face. But that's the idea. They won't change. They're not about to repent. They are just absolutely determined sinners. You know, it's deeply ingrained in their whole nature and psyche. And uh, they're not going to turn away from that. Um, you know, Jeremiah sort of, uh, you know, had the idea, well, we've been talking to the wrong uh, kind of class of people. You know, th these are the poor. They don't know any better. They don't really understand. You know, I mean, they're not educated, probably is what we'd say. So maybe they should get, we need to go to the, the higher classes. You know, they've got better education, better understanding. I'll go to the great and speak to them. They'll, they'll know. They'll understand. They'll do the right thing. And what does he find when he does that? They've broken the yoke as well. They're not any different. It's not because, you know, he went to the wrong class of people. Go back to 220 for a minute. In, in 220, uh, they, there's the textual question here. Maybe for long ago you broke your yoke. I think that's a better text. That's in the margin of the New American Standard. And tore off your bonds and, but, and you said, I will not serve. You know, it's like an ox that you put the yoke on the ox and the yoke, ox yanks it off. I'm not sure how an ox would do that, but it's the idea, the refusal to serve. So it's what you found. Even among the, the higher classes, they broke the yoke. They burst the bonds. They are not going to do what God says. So, what, what is there left for God to do but verse 6? He uh, depicts the foreign invaders uh, as various types of animals. And think about what each of these animals, you know, kind of more or less uh, emphasize the qualities of these animals. A lion, you think about what? Strength, yes. And a wolf, you think about? Self. Stealth and oh, ravenous. Ravenous. Isn't that the, the adjective of choice for wolves? And ravenous means what? Wolf-like. <laughs> Thank you. Ruthless. <laughs> hungry. Hungry, yeah. Hungry and they're going to eat to satisfy the hunger, yeah. And uh, a leopard, do you think of? Speed. Speed, yeah. Speed and maybe agility. So, I mean, all you roll that all into one. And whoa, they're going to face something that's going to tear them in pieces because their transgressions are many, their apostasies are numerous. You must say, the Lord's very explicit in this section. You know, he doesn't leave a lot to the imagination. He just really, you know, lays it out just like it is. Comments or questions on the first six verses here? Matt? Um, I was just thinking of Ezekiel 22, verse 30. Um, I'll read 29 through 31. The people of the land have practiced oppression and committed robbery, and they have wronged the poor and needy and have oppressed the sojourner without justice. I searched for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand at the gap before me in the land, 
so that I would not destroy it, but found no one. Thus I have poured out my indignation on them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath, their way. I have brought upon their heads, declares the Lord God. Uh, Ezekiel 22, 29-31. Um, I think it fits very well with what we're talking about, where God was searching for a man in Jerusalem, couldn't find one. And just to stand in the gate, to build up his portion of the gate, stand in that gap, and just hold against these, these forces of uh, oppression and robbery, um, about wronging the poor, needy, and oppressed. And we see injustice all the time, and I think it's just a personal application. It's just we need to see our position in the wall, and stand in the gap, and do our part in that regard, not think of the whole picture. But if we do our part, then the Lord won't bring condemnation. Which means we're going to have to swim upstream. I mean, you know, we're not going to be the majority. We're not going to have a lot of support from people around us. I mean, somebody's got to stand up and do what's right, even though almost nobody is. You might, Micah 7, 1 and 2, if you're taking notes, is a similar passage. Nobody's righteous kind of idea. You know, he'd like to find one. Uh, so, I mean, you've got those situations. I mean, you know, I think as inspiring as any time almost that, that, that you saw somebody willing to stand virtually alone, I think of Joshua and Caleb. I mean, and they're standing alone among God's people. <laughs> you know, the ones who said, trust the Lord, we can conquer. And everybody else said, no, 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 we can't do it. So, wow, you willing to do that? You willing to be one of two? <laughs> you know, against 600,000? <laughs> You know, that, that's, uh, that's often what God's people have been called upon to do, is to, to really stand up and do what's right and be faithful to the Lord. But you haven't got a lot of support around you. Other thoughts? Good comment. All right. Um, 7, back to Jeremiah 5, 7 to 13. How shall I pardon thee for this? Thy children have forsaken me, and sworn by them that there are no gods. When I have fed them to the fool, they have committed adultery, and assembled themselves by troops in the harlot's house. They were as, they were as fed horses in the morning, every one neighed after his neighbor's wife. Shall I not visit for these things, saith the Lord? Shall not my soul be avenged for such a nation as this? Go ye up upon her walls, and destroy, and make not a fool end. Take away her battlements, for they are not the Lord's. For the house of Israel and the house of Judah have dealt very treacherously against me, saith the Lord. They have bellied the Lord, and said, It is not he, neither shall evil come upon us, neither shall we see sword nor famine. And the prophets shall become wind, and the word is not in them. Thus shall it be done unto them. Well, they haven't done anything that would lead God to forgive them. In fact, they've aggravated and added insult to injury. What were they doing in verse 7? Sorry, by other gods. So they are declaring allegiance to other gods. They believe in them so much, they, they punctuate their oaths with oaths to other gods. Uh, how does God feel when we serve other gods? Okay. Betrayed, because we've got this marriage covenant with him. And if we serve other gods, like running around on him, it seems to me, you can think about this, look at this, but in the end of 7 and 8, are we not broadening this out beyond spiritual adultery to actual literal adultery? I think so. When he says especially, 
In verse 8, they were well-fed, lusty horses, each one neighing after his neighbor's wife. I suspect he means more than just the idolatry. Because, you know, when we're unfaithful to the Lord, we're usually unfaithful in our relationship with other people as well. And so my guess is here that we're also dealing with literal adultery. And, and how disgusting. You know, it's like just an uncontrolled animal appetite. You know, like horses neighing after some mare. You know, isn't that disgusting? But you think about how corrupt our society has become to where married or not, you know, men in, in our culture, maybe it's always been this way, I have no idea, but men in our culture so often just look at a woman and all they see is a figure. They don't even see her as a person, not somebody with a soul, you know, not as, as, as someone to care about their spiritual destiny, it's just what kind of attributes does she have? You know, wow, very animal, very degraded, and, and you know, as, as people made in the image of God, we should not look at each other that way. We should not think about each other that way. And you make a covenant of marriage, you are faithful in that covenant, period. No matter what, no matter how bad it is, or how much you might like it to be otherwise. But so often, you know, people just discard that and, and don't even think about it. In our culture, just as here. So he says, shall I not punish these people? And on a nation such as this, shall I not avenge my, myself? I mean, it's like, well, I mean, how can I do otherwise? He's going to repeat that in verse 29 and also in 9.8. It's kind of like a refrain, kind of like a bell tolling. Shall I not avenge myself on a people like this? Thoughts and comments on 7 to 9? Kind of reminds me of Deuteronomy 32 where he talks about how looking into the future, the Israelites would forsake God and turn to other gods, other gods who were, you know, that their fathers did not know, these new gods that came out of nowhere. And then later on in the chapter, he talks about how they fall on their face, and he comes to them and says, where are your gods now? And that's really what we need to learn is that the, these gods, they weren't here before us, and they aren't going to be very long after us, so there's no reason to trust in them when the Lord is a rock and he's been here forever. That's exactly right. Yeah, I mean, you know, if a God doesn't come through with you and you, come through for you when you need him, what good is the God? And these won't, none of them will. Only them. Good point. Other thoughts? So look what he's going to do. He's going to, in verse 10, go up through her vine rows and destroy. But the next phrase, does this surprise you? But do not execute a complete destruction. Why not? There's complete abandonment of the Lord. Why no complete destruction? It's merciful. Exactly. Mercifully, he limits really what they deserved. He's going to preserve a remnant in spite of themselves. Uh, but he is going to devastate them. I mean, he's not trying to say there's not punishment coming, but actually God's not going to give them the punishment they deserve. You know, then he talks about how they dealt, dealt very treacherously with me. They're just so... You, they they, they, they uh, stab him in the back. 
You know, they say nice things about God, while at the same time they turn around and betray him. I mean, you know, what would you think about uh, uh, maybe a woman who, who to her husband's face tells him how wonderful he is and how much she loves him and how he's just the only thing for her. Behind his back she's going out with other guys. You know, it's like, wow. That's, that You compound the adultery with lying and deceit. You know, so they say really nice things to God all the while they were, they were, you know, betraying his trust in them. They kept saying, you know, oh, he's not going to do anything bad, bad to us. No, we're not going to suffer from him. That's just a lie. Verse 12 is not true. It's what we always want to think. But when we're unfaithful to God, he will punish. And then what do you think about 13? The prophets are wind, and the word is not in them. Thus it will be done to them. How do you take that? There's two options. <coughs> Who's he talk who is gone here one day and gone the next? The prophets. Which one? Um. Like Jeremiah? Yeah. Okay, if that's true, then I think that's what they were saying about Jeremiah. They were saying, hey, yeah, don't worry about him. He'll be gone soon. What he said doesn't really matter. That this is kind of their dismissal of men like Jeremiah. That's a possibility. Do you see another possibility? False prophets. Maybe it's what Jeremiah is saying about the false prophets. That their words are empty. They won't last. Words like verse 12. Misfortune will not come on us and we will not see sword or famine. That's what the false prophets often said. But that's Soon, we're going to see those words didn't have any validity. I, I, I'm open on either one of those. I'm not sure which one that is. Do you have thoughts or comments through verse 13? All right, 14 to 19. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, Because you have spoken this word, behold, I am making my words in your mouth fire, and this people would, and it will consume them. Behold, I am bringing a nation against you from afar, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. It is an enduring nation. It is an ancient nation. A nation whose language you do not know, nor can you understand what they say. Their quiver is like an open grave. All of them are mighty men. They will devour your harvest and your food. They will devour your sons and your daughters. They will devour your flocks and your herds. They will devour your vines and your fig trees. They will demolish with the sword your fortified cities in which you trust. Yet even in those days, declares the Lord, I will not make you a complete destruction. It shall come about when they say, Why has the Lord our God done all these things to us? Then you shall say to them, As you have forsaken me and served foreign gods in your land, so you will serve strangers in a land that is not yours. So he, uh, he responds to what the people said uh, in verse 14. At least the words of like verse 12, misfortune will not come on us, we will not see sword or famine. Because they've said this, God's going to make what Jeremiah is saying fire, and he's going to make them wood. What happens when you put fire and wood together? Fire. Fire and... And the wood diminishes, yeah. You know, fire and wood pretty much uh, mix like the wood disintegrates and the fire takes over. So that's a bad combination. If Jeremiah's words are like fire and the people will like wood, 
That doesn't speak uh, well for what's going to happen to the people. And then in more literal terms, starting in verse 15, what's he describing? Enemy Yeah. So we've got this enemy nation. Now what are some things he says about the enemy nation that make this more fearful? It's old and it's lasted a long time. Yeah, this is no upstart power. This is a, an ancient nation. Been around a long time. What else? Enduring. Yeah, yeah. They, they, uh, they're noted for their longevity. What else? No foreign language. Now, why would that be particularly frightening? You're unfamiliar with it. Yeah, you ever heard of Oriental languages? <laughs> kind of makes you wonder, you know, what in the world is that? It, make, it means something to them because they'll go on with each other like that and like they know what each other's talking about. But it sounds really weird to us. But it's more than that. The fact that they speak a language they don't communicate in means what? What if they beg for mercy? <laughs> they won't even be understood. You know, anything they say, the enemy don't even know what they're saying. So it makes it even less likely that there'll be any kind of, you know, I don't know, accommodation, it, it just makes it more frightening. Uh, what else does he say about them? In verse 15? Yeah, in all those verses. They're mighty. They're mighty. What else? That quivers like an open grave. What does that say? In the supply bearers. Yes, yes, and, and the quiver, like the, where the, where they, I guess the quiver's like where the arrows are kept, right? Well, what is this quiver longing for? More victims? You know, it's like uh, an open grave, like, it's almost like a, 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 a bottomless grave. You know, it's always longing for another, you know, dead body. I think that's the idea. You know, they're so good with the bow and arrow that their quiver just accommodates more and more relentlessly, you know, gaping open to gain more uh, victims. They devour everything. But now look at verse 18. Again, what do we see? Not a complete destruction. Not a complete destruction. Look also at 427. That makes three times in these two chapters that he said, not a complete destruction. And he says it pretty much in the same words all three times. That is amazing when you see what they deserve. How impressive that even in this statement, warning of the judgment, he is careful to emphasize it won't be a complete destruction. It's really impressive. Okay, thoughts and comments uh, through 18. In 19, when they say, you know, why is God doing this? I love his answer. You know, you've forsaken me and served foreign gods, so I'm going to send you 
to foreign lands. Sometimes they'll say, I'm not sure if this is the undertone here, sometimes they'll say that like, well, if you love those idol gods so much, I'll just send you where that's what they worship, you know? You'll feel right at home, you know? Uh, but at least here you serve foreign gods, therefore I'm going to serve you, send you to a foreign nation. I mean, you know, uh, you reap what you sow. Okay? Thoughts or comments through 19? 20 to 31. Declare this in the house of Jacob and proclaim it in Judah, saying, Now hear this, O foolish and senseless people, who have eyes but do not see, who have ears but do not hear. Do you fear me now, declares the Lord? Do you not tremble in my presence? For I have placed the sand as a boundary for the sea, and the eternal decree so I cannot cross over. Though the waves toss, yet they cannot prevail. Though they roar, yet they cannot cross over. But this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. They have turned aside and departed. They do not say, uh, they do not say in their hearts, Let us not fear the Lord our God, who gives us rain in its season, both the autumn rain and the spring rain, who keeps for us the appointed weeks of the harvest. Your iniquities have turned these away, and your sins have withheld good from you. For wicked men are found among my people. They watch like fowlers lying in wait. They set a trap, they catch men, like a cage full of birds, so their houses are full of deceit. Therefore they have become great and rich. They are fat, they are sleek, they are also excel in deeds of wickedness. They do not plead the cause, the cause of the orphan, that they may prosper, and that they do not defend the rights of the poor. Shall I not punish these people, declares the Lord, on a nation such as this? Shall I not avenge myself? An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule in their own authority. And my people love it so. But what will you do at the end of it? Okay. So he has them proclaim this. Uh, he says, you know, hear this. And uh, he just says a lot here. Um, he calls them a foolish and senseless people in the New American Standard. But look at your literal note in the margin if you have that. They're, literally, it's a people without heart. And then in verse 23, they have a stubborn and rebellious heart. And then in 24, they do not say in their heart. Problem with this people is heart trouble. Isn't it always? Sin begins in the heart. You know, their turning away from God was a uh, heart problem and heart failure, we might say. This foolish without heart people have eyes but don't see, have ears but don't hear. Does that remind you of what God says about anything else? Pharisees. Pharisees, know what I'm thinking about. The idols. The idols. Psalm 115, Psalm 135, and some other passages talk about how the idols... They have ears, but they can't hear. They have eyes, but they can't see. They have mouths, but they can't talk. They have legs and feet or whatever. They can't walk, that kind of stuff. Well, these people worshiped idols. You become like what you worship. That's always the case. So if, if the idols can't see or hear with their uh, organs for sight and hearing, neither can the idols people. Uh, so that, that's something to, to think about. He says, you guys don't fear me, you don't tremble in my presence, verse 22. Look, I put the sand as the boundary for the sea, 
and I made a decree that the sea can't cross over. How powerful is the sea? How many of you want to fight a big wave in a stormy sea? You're going to be able to push that back? You're going to be able to swim against it. You know, I mean, there's little more, more powerful than a turbulent sea. But God is so much more powerful that he controls the sea, the mightiest force in nature, with the most unlikely of barriers. What has God put as the barrier, the boundary for the sea? Sand. And you think of sand as being real powerful? You know, have any problem just picking up a handful of sand? Throwing it wherever you want to. Of all the things that God would use to control the sea, God uses the sand. Isn't that wild? Now, here's the lesson. The sea knows its limits. When God made the decree, the sea stops at the sand, guess what? That's where it stops. God makes the decree where we should be. He tells us our place and what do men do? Pay no heed. Do what? Pay no heed. Pay no heed, exactly. Transgress. <laughs> we, we don't respect God's limits. Can you imagine what would happen if every once in a while, you know every few years say, the Atlantic decided to trade places with North America. So suddenly North America gets flooded with all this water and the Atlantic dries up. That would be a real bummer. You know, that would be really a problem for us. Uh, thankfully, that never happens. In fact, we get all panic-stricken if a two or three feet of storm surge comes in. That destroys all kinds of stuff. And that's just a few feet. Even the worst hurricanes, it's not more than, than several feet. You know, I mean, you never have like a mile of ocean water coming up or anything like that. You know, even the worst hurricanes. Isn't that incredible? God put a very effective limit for the sea, and the sea absolutely respects it. Not that it has any great choice in the matter, but that's the point. God's boundaries have to be respected by everybody except us. We're the ones who refuse to respect God's boundaries. Now, think about this. Look over in Proverbs for a minute. Because that same point is made. Proverbs chapter 8. Proverbs 8.29. When he set for the sea its boundary, so that the water would not transgress his command. Do you see that's the same thing he's saying in, Je in Jeremiah 5? That there is that limit God put for the, the water in the, in the sea, in the ocean. And the water didn't go past it. It knows its place. It respects it. Now go back three chapters in Proverbs to Proverbs 5. Because he says we must do the very same thing. He's talking about a man and his wife. And their marital relationship. He says in verse 15, Drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. Should your springs be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets? 
let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. His point is that the marital water, so to speak, must respect the covenant that they're put in. You don't disperse those waters in the streets. You don't give those to people that you don't belong to. You have to respect the limits God put. Just as he put the limit on the sea, so he put the limit on our sexual relationships to the wife we're married to, and that's it. The sea listens and obeys. Do we? So he in Jeremiah 5 is saying, do you see how foolish you people are? God, when he placed the sand as the boundary for the sea, the sea obeys. God puts the boundaries for his people. What do they do? Transgress. He says, verse 23, Jeremiah 5, this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. They are bound to determine not to do what God says. How, how foolish that is. If we only understood who God was, then we would respect the limitations he puts on us. Thoughts? In 24, here's the unprayer. You know, they do not say in their heart, let us now fear the Lord our God who gives us rain and season. They never, they never speak like that. They don't even think like that. They never recognize where they receive their blessings. You know, they don't know the one who feeds them. I mean, even dumb animals figure that one out. You know, you can take some pretty unintelligent animals, and if the person who feeds them come around, they know about it. And they come looking for something, right? Man has no clue. You know, God's the source of all their provisions. And they don't know anything about it. Isn't that ridiculous? And these are God's people. Your iniquities have turned these away. Your sins have withheld good from you in verse 25. And then he describes the rich who are oppressing the poor. Like people who are trapping birds. They, they, they just get fatter and fatter exploiting the people with greed, dishonesty, violence, manipulating the system to take advantage of the poor and the orphaned and those who are vulnerable and don't have any clout. It appears that no atrocity was too heinous and no crime was too abominable as long as they could get rich off of it. That's what these people were like. Do you see why he says in verse 29 again, shall I not punish these people? On a nation such as this, shall I not avenge myself? I mean, really? Why would anybody think God wouldn't punish people like this? You know, if you really look at it, there's nothing else for God to do. Thoughts or comments through 29? He talks about the religious leaders in 31. The prophets prophesy falsely. The priests rule on their own authority. In other words, the prophets just tell people what they want to hear. You know, not what the Lord says. 
And, and the people, they love him. <laughs> they like positive preaching prophets. You know, the prophets who are always optimistic and telling them great things about what God's going to do for them. You know, we probably like that too. Don't you, don't you love a positive, optimistic doctor who always tells you that you're fine no matter what you have? Is that the kind of doctor you want to go to? I really don't know that I've ever heard of one like that, but I bet there are some. You know, if you knew that you could go to a doctor, you're really not doing well, and you're afraid you might have something bad, and you knew there's a doctor that he's got a reputation, no matter what you got, he tells you it's okay. Is that the doctor you go to? Why not? You want to get fixed. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> When you go to the doctor, your main goal is not to just feel better about yourself. Your main goal is to figure out what's wrong with you so maybe they can do something about it. You know, going to a positive, optimistic doctor who's always full of good news for you, if it's not well-founded, it's not helpful. But that's exactly what they did in this. They wanted the prophets who would always tell them God was happy with them, no matter what. How foolish. Because this was dealing with their soul, not just with their body. If you go to a, uh, you know, always optimistic doctor, maybe you'll die, but that's the worst thing that will happen to you. You go to an always optimistic prophet, and you'll lose your soul. And that's what they, they, that's what they have with the prophets. The priests rule on their own authority. They just, you know, whatever they thought, that's what their ruling was. And my people love it so, but look at the, verse, the end of verse 31. But what will you do at the end of it? Oh, that's, good. that's well and good for this moment when it makes you feel so much better. But what about at the end when you face the God in, God in judgment? How's it going to work then? Very wise words. Thoughts and comments. Boy. I, I, I think your statement a little longer ago was so important. There, there's nothing else that a just, holy God can do in situations like that. And uh, we, we find ourselves in the middle of our problems, all that we've done. We're wondering where God is. And we're wondering why God would let us be in this situation. And it's, it, that's, that's where they are. Yeah, well, sometimes in the prophets, the people found out where God was on the other side fighting against them. <laughs> You know, they always thought God was with them. But so often in the prophets, he'll say, I'm against you. Because they weren't with the Lord. You know, why would God let us go through this? He's probably trying to wake us up before he has to totally destroy us. Other thoughts? Kevin? Kind of like how it ends with what we do at the end of it. And then in the next chapter, there's... people who make us feel good and convince us to do what's wrong how much help are they going to be then you know they're a lot of fun now <laughs> they're not going to be so fun then 
Other thoughts? Uh, 29, shall I not punish these people, declares the Lord, on a nation such as this, shall I not avenge myself? After giving a litany of what they've done wrong, I mean, just thinking about how things are now with people, they just don't see sin as what it is, and therefore their judgment of God is therefore skewed because we don't deserve to be punished because our sin isn't that bad. And it's just, there needs to be a realization that our sin is bad, and that um, we need to understand that, and then we can have a fuller appreciation of appreciation of God's justice and therefore his mercy after that. Yeah, it's really helpful when we are honest with who we are, where we are, and what our situation is. That's why God gave us the word. It was a mirror. We're supposed to see our real condition in it. Sometimes it's why we don't like it and we don't want to read and study it because it gives us a picture we don't like to see of ourselves. Other thoughts? Chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. 